Well, in 1998, Tom Brokaw released his book, The Greatest Generation, in which he tells of the men and women who were born during the Great Depression, served in World War II, and then came to build the United States to be the wealthiest and most technologically advanced society ever known. Brokaw's research surprised him because almost to a person, they didn't brag or boast of what they did in the war. Rather, they just felt like that was their duty. That's what they should have been doing. And they were defined, as he says, by common values, duty, honor, economy, courage, service, love of family and country, and above all, responsibility for oneself. Now, one could argue with Brokaw and maybe argue that another generation was greater, but it's an opinion. And it's an interesting thing. We often like to compare, have terms of comparison, say this is better, this is worse. It starts in the playground. I'm faster than you. I'm stronger than you. My dad could beat up your dad. Goes into the classroom. I'm smarter than you. I can do better on that test than you. And then it doesn't just stay in the schools we grow up, and it works into our neighborhoods and our workplaces. And it's a hidden and sometimes not so hidden competition of who's got the best car, who's got the best children, who's got the best vacation. And over and over, we're comparing and trying to say, I am better than you. You know, inside of us, inside every person, is a desire for greatness. And this morning, in Luke's Gospel, we're going to be shown greatness. But the picture... Is not that just Jesus is greater, but that Jesus is the greatest of all things. And Luke's going to show us that in three ways. If you have a bulletin, this outline is on the back. First, we're going to see from John the Baptist's perspective, the greater one is still to come. And then we'll see that the greater one receives heavenly endorsement. And then lastly, we'll see the greater and faithful representative. But let's begin by looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Please follow along as I read. So as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff. He will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So we looked at John the Baptist last week, and here it says his ministry is so impactful that people are wondering, is this actually the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied about? Even later, Jesus will say about John in Matthew eleven eleven, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, by Jesus' own words, was the greatest who had yet to come. And yet, John here reflects that off him. Now, you can imagine his temptation to bask in the praise of people. Oh, yeah. I am pretty good. That was a really good fire sermon I gave last week. I'm a good guy. I'm a wonderful prophet out here in the wilderness. You know, it's easy to be humble when no one thinks you're that great. But bless someone with praise, bless someone with wealth, and all of a sudden their true character is revealed. Well, again, though, John doesn't let the crowds influence him. 
He stays true to his calling and he points to someone who is greater. Because he says there's a greater one who's still to come, the Messiah. In fact, he's so much greater, he says, that I'm not even worthy to undo the strap of his sandal. Now that's significant because in their society, they would expect slaves to do many things, but they would not expect their slaves to take off the sandals from their feet. It was considered a task so demeaning, so lowly, that you wouldn't even ask a slave to do that. And yet John the Baptist considers himself so inferior to the Messiah that he's not even worthy to perform the most humbling of tasks for this one who is coming. Now John clearly did not have the insights yet of the self-esteem movement to realize that he shouldn't be talking like this. You know, he has an inferiority complex. I mean, what is this guy talking like this for? You know, this is, this is really low. Come on, John, you need to understand you should be praising yourself. And yet, in all our t- attempts to bolster our self-worth with self-affirmations, we actually undercut any sense of worth that we have. You know, in our efforts to increase our self-esteem, we gut any meaningful value to our esteem. You know, the Bible speaks very counterculturally, and in that way, it offers true hope. You know, the Bible says, If you want value, you don't focus on yourself. You focus on the one who has the greatest value of all things. And then as you realize, compared to him, you have no value. And yet, this one loves you and cares for you. You realize, I'm of immense value. And so the Bible shows us to grow in your realization of your worth is not to look more at yourself, but to look more at God himself. And so John states, that the true Messiah is greater than him. And he tells two ways. First, he says he's greater in his strength and then in his baptism. Later, Jesus is describing a strong man. And he says in Luke chapter 11 that he will come and he will bind Satan. And he's saying he's the strong man. You know, John can preach against Satan, but only Jesus can bind him. And Jesus' baptism is even better because in Acts chapter 19, you can read about these men who come and talk to the Apostle Paul. And he says, well, were you baptized by John or by Christ? And they say, well, by John. And so they do not yet have the Spirit. Jesus provides not just the ability to show we need the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gives the Spirit. But Jesus is a dividing figure because not only does he give the Spirit, he also gives fire of judgment, a baptism of fire. Jesus says in Luke 12, 49 through 51, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And so either the Messiah is received as savior in spirit supplier or is he is a judge with fire. And John explains this next in verse seven by giving this illustration of harvesting and separating wheat. You know, I don't think many of us are farmers, but in the olden days, before modern tools, they would harvest the wheat, and then they would go lay it all on the barn floor and get out threshing tools, and over and over they would pound the wheat so that the kernel of the seed came apart from all the other parts, which I don't know because I'm not a farmer. But then they would take this winnowing fork, which this was a big wooden tool that was like a shovel but had wooden teeth on it, And they would lift it, and they would throw it in the air. And then the wind would catch the lighter chaff, blow it to the side, 
and the heavy seed would fall. Well, Jesus is saying here that the chaff is going to be collected. It's going to come back. Those who receive him, it's saying, are going to be kept. But those who don't receive him are going to be just like the chaff that's going to be collected and going to be burned in an unquenchable fire. Now, you may be thinking, well, we went over all this heavy stuff last week. Another doom and gloom, fire, repentance. But notice what it says in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now, what we've just said and how Luke describes it does not make sense to many Christians today. How can what John just said that Jesus is going to divide us and you're either going to be blessed with his spirit or you're going to be punished in unquenchable fire be good news? Isn't good news like when you tell me wonderful things about me and you say positive affirmations over my life? How can this message of judgment or blessing, reward or fire, be good news? Well, it's good news because if there is a call to repent, that means you can repent. That the one who you need to repent to is saying, I'm offering you mercy. You know, he's not saying, I'm going to come let you know there's no hope. He's saying, yes, your situation's dire, but there is hope. It's the difference between a doctor coming to you and saying, right now, we need to go have surgery. This is very urgent. If we don't do it today, I can't promise you another day. And the doctor coming and saying, I need to tell you, you have a terminal illness. There's nothing we can do. You know, one of those is drastic. Well, they're both drastic. But one of them has hope. If you do the surgery, you'll live. Here, this is good news because there is time to repent. There is the hope that if you cling on to the Savior, you will receive the Spirit and not the unquenchable fire. And we think that if we're only told good news, if we're only positive, that'll be blessings. And yet sometimes the reality is that good news is only good if there's bad news mixed with it. In fact, to the degree the bad news exists is the degree to which you'll think the good news is good. You know, if right now someone came in and said, the war is over, we all kind of, what are you talking about? But in 1945, when people would come rushing into homes and say, the Japanese have surrendered, people broke into tears. People would dance in the streets. Well, why? Because they knew the bad news of what had been going on. And the more you know the bad news, the more the good news is actually joyful and brings joy. And so John here is preaching good news. And he's preaching good news even to Herod, telling Herod he has to repent. Now, why does Herod need to repent? Well, from history, we know that Herod was married and his brother was married. But, as we would say, Herod and, Herod and Herod's brother's wife, whose name was Herodias, fell in love. And so they agreed, well, look, if we'll both divorce our spouses, we can marry. Now, notice what John does not say. He does not say, well... I don't really think that's right, but you know what? They're following their heart, and love is love. So who are we to really say anything about this? No. Nor does John say, you know what? I think this is wrong, so you're wrong. No, on the authority of God's word, he says, this is not what you should be doing, and thus, you should repent. And Herod was so appreciative of this that he threw him into prison. He didn't want to have someone tell him that what you're doing is wrong. 
If you don't like what I'm saying about me, then I'll just silence you, he says. Now, obviously, this is not the main point of the sermon, so I'm not going to harp on this. But John really is acting in a way that is quite contrary to what many in our society and even many Christians will say. And that is that we should never tell people that what they do in their private lives is wrong. That's between them. They set their own standards. We should never have any standards for anyone else. That's judgmentalism or closed-mindedness or bigotry, we're told. And yet John here does the exact opposite. He points out that, look, if we're going to call people to repent of sin, then that is going to implicitly mean there are specific sins in their life that they're going to need to repent of. We don't just call people to repent generically by God's Spirit, then it gets applied to each person's heart specifically. Now, this does not mean that we are called to be a junior Holy Spirit and go around pointing out everyone's sins to everyone. That's not the point here. Nor is it that we're to be mean-spirited about this. But as we come to know people and at the right time, we need to lovingly and humbly point out this is an area where you need to repent before the unquenchable fire comes. Before looking at the next section, though, I want to reflect a little more on John's words that a greater one comes. You might be familiar with the words in John's gospel where John the Baptist says, He must increase and I must decrease. You know, John's focus was on God, and because his focus was on God, then it was on others. In contrast, we are very me-centered people. I don't know about you, but more than once I've interacted with someone I haven't seen in a long time. We've talked 30, 45 minutes, and they ask me about one or two questions about myself, and the rest of the time it's them talking about what's going in there, on in their life and me asking them questions, and at the end they say, Oh, so great to catch up. And I'm thinking, well, actually you didn't catch up, but I know a lot about what's going on in your life. Or you might talk to someone for a long time, and at the end of the conversation when they've told you all about their life, they go, I really feel like we've gotten to know each other. And you're sitting there thinking, well, no, I got to know you. But we as a culture are so me, me, me that we don't even notice. That's all we talk about. But the more we love God, and that's the more that causes us to love others, the more we want to know about others, the more we don't feel the compulsion to talk about ourselves all the time and talk about how great we are, the more we want to know about God and want them to know him and how they are doing as well. The more we'll have the courage and love that John has not to be quiet when we see people that we love pursuing things that are ultimately destroying them. I think this passage questions me, challenges me. Do I, do you love people enough to tell them what they don't want to hear, but what they need to hear? Again, the point here is not that we need to be hateful or grow up telling everyone what's wrong in their life. There is a time, as Jesus says, not to cast your pearls before wine. swine. You might want to cast them before wine. It's a whole other topic, though. Yet, it's often our lack of love that even won't tell our children. No. When it needs to be said. It's our lack of love that will quickly say to someone, well, I can't believe they'll do that, but never go and talk to the person who's doing it. You know, that's not love. Love goes and says, if I can't believe they're doing that, that I'm going to go and talk to them. And the only way we can overcome this and grow in love is to focus 
on the greater lover. You know, it's as we know His love that we love. As we desire His glory to be known, then we care less for our own glory. The ironic reality is that the less we focus on ourselves and the more we focus on God, the more we grow in our sense of esteem and worth. And actually, the more we receive. Well, it's not just here John's opinion that Jesus is the greater one. For now, if you look in your Bibles at verses 21 and 22, we're going to see that the greater one receives heavenly endorsement. So look down, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now we're not given all the details of how John did his baptisms, but seemingly the crowds are coming, and so person after person is coming up to be baptized. And Jesus is just in the line with the rest of them. And all of a sudden John sees him, there's Jesus. Now it's not recorded here, but in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, John says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? You know, John was realizing the problem that many people since have realized. Well, if Jesus is sinless, why is he being baptized for a baptism that stands for repentance and the need to be cleansed? That doesn't make sense. Well, in Matthew again, Jesus says this is to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to take our punishment and also to give us his righteous life. Thus, Jesus did many things that once we reflect on them, they don't make a lot of sense that he did them. For example, why would Jesus go and talk to teachers when he is the ultimate teacher? Why would Jesus give sacrifices when he was the ultimate sacrifice? Why would Jesus celebrate the Passover when he is the Passover? Why would Jesus be baptized when he's the one who gives the reason that we can be baptized? And as Jesus said, he's fulfilling all righteousness, or in other words, perfectly living the righteous life that his people did not. And the events after the baptism further show that Jesus wasn't being baptized because he thought he had sin. For once he comes up, it says, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove and a voice says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now throughout the Bible, when the heavens are opened, it's God showing a unique and particular care for that situation and person. And he doesn't leave any doubt, the father does, about his love because he says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You see, if Jesus had sinned, the Father would not have been able to say that. And the affirmation from heaven is showing this is not a baptism for his own sin. This is a baptism because he's identifying, he's doing all righteousness. Now remember where we are in Luke's gospel, if you've been with us. Luke has been bouncing back and forth. He tells a story about John. And then he tells a story about Jesus. And then he tells a story about John and then about Jesus. And every time, Jesus is shown to be greater than John the Baptist. He's superior. Well, John's mystery begins, and then he shows actually a greater ministry is here. And thus God the Father speaks from heaven, leaving no doubt 
that the Father endorses the Son as the greater one, the greatest one who has come. He's the royal Son of God. He's the Messiah prophesied. He's the suffering servant whom the Father would lay the iniquity of all upon. This is like a great inauguration event. You may have seen different presidential inaugurations or inaugurations for governors where the mantle and position of leadership are granted. And everything in Luke has been pointing to this happening. But here, God makes clear that there is no doubt that this is the one that I am endorsing. This is the one who is being inaugurated to fulfill the ministry that the Messiah is to do. Now this can be slightly confusing or even the language a little misleading because it's not as though Jesus was the leading candidate for the job. There are lots of options and God says, "Eh, I'm voting for him. No, he was always God's son. It's not as though he became something at this baptism that he wasn't before. As well, it's not like Jesus, when he heard this, was like, wow, that's pretty cool. As we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus at age 12 realized all this was true of him. Jesus always was and always will be the son of God. Here, though, the father explicitly states this for all to hear. This confirms what is already true. It doesn't make something new and true about Jesus. And now with Jesus' confirmation, John the Baptist is mostly going to go from view in the Gospels. Now I want to pause because this event really shines light on some of the false teachings and heresies in groups that are very similar to Christianity. A similar religion in some ways would be Islam. They adhere to the Old Testament. They would say you should read. They would say Jesus was a great prophet. But they would also say, but he was not the Son of God. And yet here we see a clear endorsement from God the Father that Jesus is not just a great prophet. He is his eternal Son. A slightly closer but still false religion is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Or you may know them as Mormons or LDS. These are some of the kindest most loving, most serving people that I know. But they are still wrong because they would deny the Trinity. They would deny that God has existed eternally as one God in three persons. But notice here, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all active, all there, all working on one plan of redemption, yet with distinct roles. One God in three persons. Even closer, but still heretical, is a view called modalism. And what that view says is, yes, God exists, everything in the Bible is true, but God is actually just one, and he has appeared in different modes or roles. Imagine a theater, and the main actor, he plays a part. And then as the screen goes down, he runs behind stage, changes, and then the screen comes up, and he plays another role. And they would say, well, that's what God's like. In the Old Testament, he played God the Creator. And then, at the birth of Jesus, he changed roles, and he now takes on the role of God the Son. And then from Pentecost on, he takes the role of God the Spirit. But there's really only one God, they would say. And yet, notice here, we don't have one person jumping between roles. We clearly see three unique, and yet at the same place, people. God has existed eternally as one but though in three persons. And so Jesus is going through this baptism to fulfill all righteousness 
and also to identify with his people. You know, our sins are going to be taken by him. And his perfect life is going to become ours. You know, other kings, other royalty, they sometimes like to keep their distance from their people. However, the king of kings comes and relates with us. And we come to God. We relate to God through Jesus Christ. And thus, anyone who trusts in Christ, God looks at them and says, You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And I'm sure we have all, especially as you get older, have wondered if anyone is really pleased with you. Does anyone really like me? You may have had parents or someone you love say harsh and cruel things, berate you. You're a screw-up. You're a failure. You never do anything right. What's wrong with you? You might even say those things to yourself. You know, God sees the same things, but He doesn't berate us. He sent His Son to come and die for us. You know, if God only looked at us, then He wouldn't be well pleased. However, when we turn from our sins and cling to Christ, God looks at us and says, You, fill in your name. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. It doesn't matter what you look at in the mirror and think, because God the Father looks down if you're in Christ and says, He is well pleased with you. You know, our heart aches to know that, to know that we are fully accepted, fully welcomed. And in Christ, through this, we see that we are. God accepts us not in and of ourselves, but who we are in Christ. And the amazing truth is, you don't need to go on a long search for God. God came down here and sought us. And we seek Him because He first sought us. And we, we don't have to wonder, is this really true? I mean, I want to hope that here we know it's true because there's this clear endorsement from heaven. You know, Brokaw, as I mentioned at the beginning, he delights in the World War II generation. They're the greatest. You might think there's some athlete, some actress, some actor, some artist. Oh, they're the greatest. But all of that is really just opinion. Well, that's what you think. The only one whose judgment matters, the, the ruler of the universe... He looks down and says, In Christ, you are my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. Who God the Father declares His utmost pleasure for His Son. And if we're in His Son, that utmost pleasure is for us too. But Luke doesn't just provide that for us though, for he next shows that Jesus is the greater and faithful representative. This is our last section, Luke 3, 23 through 4. 13. And Luke here pivots to give a genealogy and then the story of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. And at first, it's kind of odd. Well, why does Luke insert this genealogy in this place? But notice 23, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 38. Verse 23 of Luke chapter 3, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now jump all the way down to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You know, Luke gives this genealogy here because earlier he had said Jesus is a descendant of David. And when we had seen Zechariah's and Mary's praises, they were very Israelite national hope. And it appeared that, oh, Jesus is going to come to be the son of David, the hope of Israel. 
And yet here Luke is showing, no, no, the ministry of Jesus is much greater than a hope for Israel. Yes, he is. But he's also the hope for the whole world. You see, Adam was a representative of all humanity. That's what we read earlier in Romans 5. And by going all the way back to Jesus being a son of Adam and a son of God, Luke is saying Jesus came to be a representative for all of humanity, just like Adam. Except where Adam failed, Jesus will be faithful. You see, Adam came as God's son, but he failed and he led all humanity into ruin and death. Well, then God chose another son. He called the nation Israel. And when Moses was called to speak to Pharaoh, it says in Exodus 4.22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Or God will later, through the prophet Hosea, in Hosea 11.1 1 say, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And you may be familiar with that because that gets picked up in Matthew when Mary and Joseph flee with Jesus to Egypt because the wrath of Herod is being poured out, it says in Matthew 2.15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so this whole section, what's driving this, is this theme that Jesus is God's son. We saw that in the baptism, 3.22, you're my beloved son. Here in the genealogy, it ends with him being a son of God. And then look down in chapter 4. Verse 3, what's the first temptation? The devil said to him, if you're the son of God. And over and over what's driving this is, is Jesus going to be the faithful representative where Adam and where Israel failed God? And so Luke includes this genealogy because he's wanting to say, Jesus' ministry came. Jesus came to serve faithfully where the prior representations of humanity, the representatives, Adam and Israel, failed. And so Luke is making no mistake by putting his genealogy here. He inserts it here purposefully. He's making a theological point. Jesus is the hope, not only of Israel, but of the entire world. And why can he be that hope? Well, that's what he's going to show us in chapter 4, 1 through 13. Because he was faithful in the midst of temptation. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And when he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And so Jesus' temptations, they weren't some accident. Rather, the Spirit intentionally led him into the wilderness. This wasn't a detour wasn't a mistaken step on the journey. The GPS wasn't in error. The Spirit-filled, the Spirit-led Jesus was marched right into the battle. You know, the battle began back in Genesis when the devil tempted Adam and Eve and led them into sin. He deceived them. And so God then responded and said, there's going to be another son, son of Adam, son of God, who's going to come and crush the deceiver, deceiver crush the serpent. And so with the inauguration of Jesus' ministry with his baptism, the Spirit leads Jesus to the very point where the battle must be fought, the temptations of the devil. And so Luke depicts this battle going on with the devil for 40 days. And then at the end, there's these three concluding temptations. But notice again where these are, the situation. 
40 days in the wilderness. Well, that's symbolically pointing to Israel, where they failed for 40 years in the wilderness. As well, notice that every benefit Adam had was a, whatever the opposite, a loss, I guess that's the opposite of benefit, for Jesus. Adam was in a lush garden with all the food he could enjoy. Jesus was in a barren desert, starving. Adam had a helper and had never known sin. Jesus is alone and has been in a world of sin his entire life. Thus, Jesus is entering a more dangerous battleground under worse conditions and with a physically weakened state. And where does Satan strike first? Verse 3, if you're the son of God, command these stones, this stone to become bread. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on all these temptations. Keith has done an excellent job with those, and I'd encourage you to listen to the sermons he's given on those. So I'm going to look at these briefly. But as Keith even noted, each of these is a little odd at first. I mean, why is he tempting him? You know, the issue is clearly not power or ability, because Jesus is later going to take five loaves and multiply them so that five, more than 5,000 people go home fully satisfied. So what is the temptation? It is that Satan whispers to Jesus the exact reverse of what he whispered to Eve. To Eve, you'll surely die. You will not surely die if you eat this. What does he say to Jesus? You're going to die if you don't eat. You will die if you do not eat. But in both cases, the issue was not the mere desire to fill one's belly, but that God really can't be trusted. That true life existed outside of what God provided. Thus, Jesus responds with a powerful rebuke in verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone. True life, Jesus shows, exists not merely with the king and the physical body, but ultimately with the spiritual as well. You know, this temptation is striking at the idea that God isn't really good, that he's holding something back. And Satan whispers, if you really want life, Eve, Jesus, Jeremy, you, you've got to take something that God doesn't want you to have. Or you need to not take something that God says you should have. Remember, God the Spirit led Jesus here. He wanted Jesus hungry. You know, this really strikes me because I'm prone to say things like, well, you know, I'm really sorry I did that, but I was so tired. Or I, I wouldn't have done that, but I was really hungry and I, I just had to get something to eat. And what I'm saying, in essence, is, you know what? God provided beforehand a situation that makes my sin really understandable, justifiable, rational. So what I did really wasn't wrong. Because I had all this hard stuff before me. Well, no one had nothing, anything harder before him than Jesus. Jesus, of all people, could have said, look, God didn't provide enough. I mean, that was 40 days. I'm tired. I'm hungry. And yet, Jesus didn't rationalize. He was faithful. Well, Satan attacks again in verses 5 through 7 by offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world and all their glory if he'll worship him. And again, this probably strikes most of us at first as a non-tempting offer. Well, why? I mean, why is Jesus going to bow down to Satan? There's no temptation there. And yet, in fact, this temptation strikes at the very core of Jesus' mission. 
Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, which he did and does, he came to restore his kingdom. He came to take back from the devil what the devil had gained through deceit. Yet Jesus started making the connections, even as early as age 12, that though Satan stole it by deceit, Jesus would only win it back by his own death. Jesus would have been aware of the prophecies like Isaiah 53, which says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And Satan whispers, it doesn't have to be through your wounds that they're healed. You can have the kingdom without the suffering, without the affliction, without the cross. Just bow to me. I'll give you what you're here for anyways. And this temptation strikes us too. For the more we want something, and Jesus wanted nothing more than to please his father and restore the kingdom, the more we want something, the more we can justify our sins to have it. You know, we're in love. We're going to get married anyway. What's the big deal? You know, I know this isn't right, but I, this is my family. I'm the provider. This is going to be best for my family. God knows this is what I'm supposed to do. And when we want it, we come up with all these internal ways to go, well, yes, this isn't the way God would have to do it, but I'm doing what he wants. The big thing is what I'm doing. He needs to know my motivation. So my action doesn't really matter. Jesus, though, responds, verse 8, you shall worship God and serve him alone. You know, Jesus realizes that worship is not just an event you attend. Worship is not just an activity you do. Worship reveals itself in the daily actions we undertake to achieve what we desire. See, true worship has the right desire, God's glory, along with the right actions to obtain it. No shortcuts, even though that would be easier. No justifications, but rather the faithful obedience to, to God that trusts His plans and wisdom, even when that calls us down the path of suffering, the path of the cross. Well, Satan responds with a final temptation for now. Throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. Now, this one seems very pious. It's like, well, I'm trusting God. I'm just taking God at his word. He said it. However, it's not faith, but it's presumption that the man's God acts according to the way you think he'll fulfill his word. This happens even today. People will say, even Christians, well, look, God promises. You name this promise and God's going to give it to you. If you just speak positive affirmations over your life, God is going to give it to you. That's a lie. God does not promise if you speak positive things, positive things will happen in your life. That is what is being tempted here. God has to fulfill his promises the way you think. And so what does Jesus say? Don't put God to the test. God does not have to respond to how we think he should fulfill his word. And with those, Satan leaves waiting for the next opportune time. And so here, we've seen that Jesus was faithful everywhere where the representatives of humanity before him were not. And this leads us to two very important implications and applications. First, it's not just some 
vaporous hope that God will accept us. Our hope is in the confidence that Jesus actually lived the perfect life in my place. That he was faithful in all the places where I was not. You know, Jesus is in the battle here. In every battle, he conquers where Israel, where Adam, where I have failed. You know, Jesus' faithfulness is our hope in the midst of our failures. You know, the problem is sometimes we like to stare at our failures. We like to bring them up over and over. But for every look at your sin, every look at your failure, take ten looks at Christ's victory. Look at Him. That is what gives you hope. Your hope is not how good you've been for God, but how utterly righteous and perfect Jesus was for you. Now this passage often gets viewed, and it should get viewed, from the perspective of how can we defeat sin. And that's an important implication and application that we should reflect on. But I wonder, do we sometimes get so focused on how we can defeat sin that we don't first rejoice in the fact that Jesus defeated sin? That's what this is primarily about. He is the victor. And that though I should learn from him, that is true, and we should draw those applications. My hope is not how much I can overcome sin, but how much he overcame sin for me. But a second important implication from this is, notice what happened just before this. Just before this was Jesus' baptism and the declaration that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, we often draw the wrong implication in our own life. We say, you know what? I have suffering and I got burdens and I got trials. God doesn't love me. What do we see in Jesus' life? declaration of love and then the suffering and then the trials and then the burdens come the burdens and the trials and sufferings in this life don't read those as a sign of the lack of God's love they might actually be the showing the revealing of his love as he purges us and refines us in this case his love sent trials and suffering to deliver and save us through his son so Luke here is showing Theophilus, and he shows us that Jesus is the greatest. He's the greatest because by his victory we have hope in salvation. I'll conclude with this. Many of you have probably seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. At the very end of the movie, Indiana and his father are close to getting the Holy Grail, but then his father gets shot and he's dying. And his only hope is that Indiana will go get the grail and the drink of life that will give his father life. However, there's a problem. He has to pass three tests. And as he's going, he sees other men who have literally failed the test before him. They died on the way. And so he goes, and he has to do something so that his father will not die. And you can watch the movie if you want to know what happens. But... There's one aspect that the movie doesn't re reflect on. And that is, well, let's just say you save your dad. 20 years from now, he's going to die. You've only put off death for a short time. You know, all of our heroes, all the ones we love, they do great things, but they're sinners. And they all die. And we, we should laud and praise people here on earth. People have done wonderful things, but only as a reflection of the greater one who didn't need to die at all. 
He didn't need to come. He didn't need to be baptized. But he came and he took death so that we might have life. He's the only one who never sinned. He's the only one who didn't need to go through the waters of baptism. And yet he entered in. He went under the fire of his baptism that it talks about, the unquenchable fire, and he quenched it. He quenched it for those who would trust in him so that we can have life, so that we could trust in him and have hope. So turn to the greatest one. You know, as you look and delight in the greatest one, you'll have hope, meaning, and joy. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in your Son. Lord, we are prone, I'm prone to look at what we even did this last week and see all the failures, all the places where we fell short, the things we did that we shouldn't have done, the things we should have done that we didn't do. And yet, Lord, may we again look with joy at the victory of your Son, that the focus of our life isn't us, it's you. And that in you we have overcome sin. It's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen.